Chapter 13 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 9, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 13, Sheridan in the Shenandoah. General Grant had at last, in command of the forces in the Shenandoah, a soldier who possessed his utmost confidence and affection. Sheridan was then thirty-three years old, small and compact in stature, not carrying an ounce of superfluous flesh, unpretending in manner, but quick to exert all proper authority, absolutely at home in the saddle and seemingly incapable of fatigue, an eye for topography as keen and far-reaching as an eagle's, and that gift for inspiring immediate confidence in all around him, which is the most inestimable of all possessions for a soldier. With all his relish for fighting and his brilliant record in action, he was no mere sabreur. He was as cool as he was courageous, as wise in planning as he was energetic in executing. He spent all the time that was necessary in thorough preparation, and while in his hands one man was generally as good as one of the enemy, he always tried to have two men at the point of attack to his adversaries one. There was no luck in the splendid series of victories that attended his career in the valley. They were all made ready in advance and honestly earned. Anxious as the President and General Grant were that Sheridan should put himself south of the enemy, and ardently as Sheridan sympathized in this desire, it was never to be accomplished. Though brilliant successes awaited him, they were all to be gained over a brave and vigilant adversary, and all attacks had to be made in front. Sheridan, however, never gave up the hope with which he began of getting in rear of his enemy. At the very outset, while Early was still on the Potomac, he said, quote, I will strike for Winchester, which is the key, and pick up the parties on the north side of the Potomac, end quote. And he moved out from Halltown with that intention on the morning of the 10th of August. But Imboden had, on the day before, reported to Early the concentration at Halltown. The latter at once began a retrograde movement. And while Sheridan was moving in admirable order, his cavalry guarding both flanks, the 6th Corps on the right, the 8th on the left, and the 19th in the center, to take up a line between Clifton and Berryville, Early was hurrying back from Bunker Hill through Winchester up the valley. He was, as usual with the Confederates in Virginia, better informed than his adversary. He knew Sheridan's strength, and he knew also that a large reinforcement was on its way from General Lee to enable him to defeat the national forces, while Sheridan had been expressly told by Grant on the ninth that not one brigade had been sent from Lee against him. Early, therefore, very properly declined the battle which Sheridan offered him on the banks of the Opequon, and fell back to meet his reinforcements further up the valley in the neighborhood of Strasburg. And Sheridan, not imagining upon what danger he was rushing, pursued Early with diligence when he found he could not cut him off, and heavy skirmishing occurred at several points. The Confederates came to a halt at Fisher's Hill, two miles south of Strasburg, and assumed a strong position there. Early sent word to General R. H. Anderson, who, with Kershaw's division of infantry and Fitzhugh Lee's division of cavalry, was on the way to reinforce him to move to Front Royal. Sheridan was soon informed of this movement of Anderson's, and it caused him great anxiety. 
as this was too important a force to be left on his left flank and rear in case he should attack Fisher's Hill in front. Although Sheridan's effective force amounted in all to some 30,000, his, quote, effective line of battle strength at this time was, as he says in his report, about 18,000 infantry and 3,500 cavalry, end quote. Not enough to risk a decisive battle with Early's force, increased not only by the Richmond contingent, but by the remnants Averill had left of McCausland's house burners. He therefore confined himself to skirmishing and thorough picket searching of the enemy's lines, until on the morning of the 14th, Colonel N. P. Chipman, escorted by a regiment of cavalry, galloped into camp from Washington with a dispatch from Grant, announcing the departure of a heavy force from Lee's army to join Early. This time Grant exaggerated the true state of affairs. He said there were two divisions of infantry on the way instead of one, an error which, however, he corrected two days later. He therefore enjoined caution, and said Sheridan must act on the defensive until movements at Petersburg should draw Confederate troops away from the valley. He did not think Early's force exceeded 40,000 men, but this was too much for Sheridan to attack, and when, on the 14th, he discovered that only one division of infantry had left his front, he still thought Sheridan had not a sufficient superiority in numbers to warrant an attack upon a fortified position. Sheridan, on receiving these orders, felt his situation to be somewhat critical. He was not justified in going forward. Going backward was a delicate operation in the face of a watchful opponent, and there was not, in his opinion, which events afterwards justified, a good defensive position in the valley south of the one at Halltown. He did the best that could be done under the circumstances. He retired from the valley and gained a long start before early on the morning of the 17th perceived his departure. The Confederates set off at once in hot pursuit, Early from Strasburg and Anderson from Front Royal. The latter had a sharp brush with Wesley Merritt's cavalry, in which the Confederates were severely repulsed. Sheridan, who at first intended to halt at Winchester, concluding that the place was not defensible, moved back to Berryville, where he had Snicker's Gap behind him, through which a reinforcement of two divisions was coming to him. He seized on the way all mules, horses, and cattle that could be of use to the army, and ordered all subsistence and forage which could not be taken away to be destroyed, at the same time commanding that no dwellings be burned. These orders were faithfully executed. The army moved with the precision of troops on parade, back to the station assigned them, and afterwards, following a spirited fight near Charlestown between the Sixth Corps and Early's advance, took up the stronger position at Halltown. This once more left the lower valley, as far as the Potomac, open to Early. There was nothing in his way but cavalry, and Sheridan had told Averill that he rather desired that the enemy should cross the river. But Early did not accept the invitation. He went far enough to break up the railroad again, and Fitzhugh Lee once more watered his horses in the Potomac. There was more subsistence in the lower valley than in the region which Sheridan had ravaged south of Winchester, so they remained there several days. There were frequent skirmishes between the cavalry of the two armies. It seemed at one moment as if Maryland was again to be invaded. Leaving Anderson to amuse the enemy, Early took the rest of his army and marched due north to Shepherdstown, handling Torbert's cavalry very roughly on the way, and cutting off Custer, 
who only saved his division by crossing the river. Sheridan hastily occupied the South Mountain Gaps and prepared to strike early in the rear if he should take the road to Washington, but he probably had no such intention. He went back to Bunker Hill on the 27th, and Anderson, who had been closely pressed by Crook in a reconnaissance the day before, also fell back to Stevenson's depot. Sheridan acted throughout these operations with the greatest discretion and prudence, constantly resisting the numerous temptations to attack presented by Early's eccentric marches. Thus far, he had been following Grant's suggestions in pursuing this waiting policy, but now Grant telegraphed him that in view of the destructive battles that had been raging on the Weldon Road, he believed the force in the valley would be speedily reduced for the benefit of Lee's army. Quote, Watch closely, he said, and if you find this theory correct, push with all vigor. End quote. He reiterated his orders to destroy everything that could assist the enemy. Quote, if the war is to last another year, we want the Shenandoah Valley to remain a barren waste. End quote. Sheridan now moved forward, August 28th, with the same caution and perfect order which had characterized all his marches, to take up again the line from Clifton to Berryville, which he accomplished on the 3rd of September. The same day, Averill struck his old enemy McCausland, another stunning blow at Bunker Hill, but on the following day was himself driven from the place by Rhodes's infantry. All this while, Sheridan had been patiently waiting for the detachment of Confederate troops from his front, which both Grant and he expected as a consequence of the heavy losses Lee had suffered near Petersburg. This move of the enemy, so ardently desired by Sheridan, would have taken place at this juncture if the march of the national troops had not prevented it. On the 26th of August, General Lee had written to Early, informing him that he was in great need of Anderson's troops at Richmond, if they could be spared from the valley, and after consultation with Early, Anderson moved on the 3rd of September upon Berryville for the purpose of crossing the Blue Ridge at Ashby's Gap. But at that point, late in the day, he ran unawares upon Crook's corps, which had just arrived and which barred his way to the mountains. A brisk engagement ensued, lasting as long as the opposing armies could see each other. Early hurried down at dawn to Anderson's assistance, and found him even yet ignorant of what was before him, an ignorance which was shared by Early, both of them thinking it was a Federal detachment raiding towards their rear. Early left one division on Anderson's left, and hurried with the rest of his force to what he imagined was the Union right flank, thinking to make short work of it. But after moving for two miles and finding no flank, he came to an elevated outlook, and discovered to his dismay the Union army stretching to his left as far as his best glasses would reach. He rejoined Anderson, and they both retreated hastily to the west side of the Opaquan. If Sheridan had been a few hours less expeditious in occupying Berryville, Anderson would have been on his way to Lee, and Early would have been left to his mercy a fortnight earlier than actually happened. For ten days he held his lines with admirable persistence and patience, exercising his cavalry in constant skirmishes, harassing and damaging the enemy more or less every day. He kept himself six miles away from the Opaquan, the west bank of which was occupied by the enemy, holding this vacant space with scouting parties, preferring not to advertise his intended movement by occupying it with his main force. At last his long self-restraint and tenacity of purpose were rewarded, 
on the 14th, as everything seemed quiet in front, and Early had begun to think lightly of an adversary apparently so languid, General Anderson again started for Lee's army, crossing the mountains by way of Front Royal, it is needless to say, without molestation. Sheridan received information of this movement on the night of the 15th, and with every energy of mind and body on the alert, prepared to seize the inestimable chance of the hour. The president was extremely anxious that a move should be made. Three days before, he had made this suggestion to Grant, quote, Sheridan and Early are facing each other at a deadlock. Could we not pick up a regiment here and there, to the number of, say, 10,000 men, and quietly but suddenly concentrate them at Sheridan's camp and enable him to make a strike? End quote. Not only was the opportunity a great one, the need was great also. At the very moment when Anderson's column was marching out of its camps, Halleck was telegraphing to Grant that the long-continued interruption of the Ohio and Chesapeake and Baltimore and Ohio railroads was threatening a dearth of fuel in Washington and Baltimore. The gas companies feared they would be compelled to stop their works. If Sheridan was not strong enough to break Early's hold on the railroad, he should be reinforced. The long inactivity of the Army of the Shenandoah was beginning to attract the ready criticism of the northern press. The enemies of the government were using it in the hot canvas, then going forward, as an argument for a change of administration. Yet, as General Grant says in his report, the consequences of a defeat at that time would have been so serious, laying open to the enemy the states of Maryland and Pennsylvania for long distances, that he hesitated to allow the initiative to be taken. In this state of perplexity, he left Petersburg and hastened to Sheridan's camp. He found the young general so sure of his ground, so cool, and yet so eager, that he, quote, saw there were but two words of instructions necessary, go in, end quote. And with these words, leaving Sheridan to himself, Grant started to New Jersey to put his children to school. Sheridan's first intention had been to move to Newtown on the Valley Pike, giving up his own line and taking that of the enemy. This would have been a move of extraordinary boldness and brilliancy, and if successful, would have involved the destruction of Early's army. But on the 18th, he learned that Early had, on the day before, with almost incredible carelessness, gone with half his army to Martinsburg, intent, with that fixed idea which was almost a mania with him, on breaking up a party which was repairing the railroad. On the receipt of this news, Sheridan instantly changed his plan, seeing before him the safer prospect of catching Early in his sin and destroying the two halves of his army in succession. He was not, however, to have so easy a victory. Early had heard at Martinsburg of Grant's visit, and concluding that there would soon be a movement, hurried back with his troops to Stevenson's depot, only four miles from Winchester, in the neighborhood of which place his whole force was concentrated the next morning. Sheridan encountered, therefore, double the number he expected. But the excellence of his plans, and the spirit of his troops, brought him into the battle with all the omens on his side. His army was early afoot. The day was fine, and at the first flush of dawn they marched across the neutral ground which stretched from the Union lines to the Opaquan. Wilson, crossing the creek with his cavalry before daylight, hurried through the Berryville Canyon, some two miles long, carried by assault the earthworks which guarded its western entrance, and then took position on the extreme left flank. The infantry followed rapidly, 
the sixth corps deploying on the open rolling ground to the front and left of the defile and the nineteenth on the right the position was about two miles from winchester a confederate division under ramseur was drawn up in front of the town and every movement of the union troops was effected under heavy fire it was noon before all necessary dispositions were completed and the line was ready to advance by this time Rhodes and Gordon had been hurried down from Stevenson's depot and placed in line in the order named upon Ramseur's left. The sun was crossing the meridian as the line moved forward across the open fields against the enemy who were posted in a belt of woods. Wilson, on the left, struck the cavalry force of L. L. Lomax and forced him back. Wright, with the Sixth Corps, advancing on the pike, engaged Ramseur and Rhodes, gaining ground constantly. Cuvier Grover's division of the 19th Corps pushed forward against Gordon and drove the enemy with such impetuosity as to break the continuity of the Union line. The advance on the right was stopped by a terrific fire from Braxton's guns, and C.A. Battle's fresh brigade of Rhodes's division, which arrived at that moment from Stevenson's, charged at the broken point of junction between the 6th and 19th Corps, and for a moment drove back the center and checked the advance of the whole line. In this charge, General Rhodes lost his life, a damage not compensated by the momentary success. The tide was instantly turned by a charge of equal gallantry from the national side, attended by an equal calamity. A brigade of General D. A. Russell's division, led by Russell and Upton in person, rushed with splendid courage and swiftness into the gap, struck the advancing Confederates in flank, driving them back and taking many prisoners, and re-established the Union line. But the gallant and devoted Russell fell dead at the moment of his victory. Up to this time Crook had been held in reserve. It had been Sheridan's original intention to throw him in upon the left, to turn the Confederate right, seize the Valley Pike south of Winchester, and cut off Early's retreat, and for a while, even after he had discovered he was fighting Early's whole army, he hoped to accomplish this object. But the energy of the attack upon the Union right at last convinced him that it would be best to turn the Confederate left at whatever cost, and this task was assigned to Crook's force. He moved forward at once along the line of the Red Bud, a little rivulet which bounded the battlefield on the north, as Abraham's run bounded it on the south. H. F. Duval's division took the north side of the stream, and Joseph Thoburn's the south, and they moved together with irresistible momentum against the bit of woods in which General Gordon's troops were posted. There was no withstanding the rush of this fresh and compact force, and Gordon was driven back towards Winchester. The Union cavalry were at this juncture swarming in upon the Confederate left, Torbert, Merritt, and Averill had been fighting all day, with various degrees of success, on all the roads running north from Stevenson's. They had driven the Confederate cavalry pell-mell before them, and had finally dislodged Breckinridge's infantry from its advanced position and forced it in upon Winchester. While this cloud of hostile horsemen was hovering upon his left, in the open country to his right, Early could see the threatening advance of Wilson's column in the direction of the pike and in his front, Wright and Emery, under Sheridan's personal orders, were executing a left-half wheel of the whole line of battle to support the victorious charge of Crook. 
in this desperate emergency early behaved with remarkable coolness and skill defeat was inevitable his whole line was breaking and retiring but he held off the cavalry as well as he could on both flanks detached a force to the rear to guard his trains, and availed himself of an old line of breastworks just outside of Winchester to rally once more his disordered battalions. But all efforts to retrieve the day were fruitless. The Union cavalry once more swooped around the left flank of the Confederate lines. The noise of battle in their rear was too much for the nerves of the men in the breastworks. They left their shelter and poured a fluid mass through Winchester and up the valley by the open pike. Ramseur's division still maintained its organization, and being formed on the east and south of the town, covered the retreat until nightfall. The Sixth Corps occupied the road parallel to the one by which Early was escaping, but could not efficiently pursue him. There is a limit to human endurance, and these troops had been for fifteen hours on foot, marching and fighting. The reserve had been put into action on the right, and no flank movement was possible from that side. The cavalry followed up the pike to Kernstown, and came in contact with Ramseur, who still held firm in the rear. But as night came on, the pursuit ceased, and the beaten Confederates marched on through the darkness to Strasbourg. The list of the casualties shows how fierce was the fighting in this fairly won battle. The loss on the Union side was nearly 5,000, 4,300 of whom were killed and wounded. Among the killed was the lamented Russell. Among the wounded were Generals E. Upton, J. B. McIntosh, and G. H. Chapman, and Colonels Isaac H. Duval and Jacob Sharp. Early's loss was less, about 4,000, and 2,000 of these were prisoners. He lost heavily in valuable officers, Generals R. E. Rhodes and A. C. Godwin, and Colonel W. T. Patton, killed, Generals Fitzhugh Lee and Zebulon York, severely wounded. As the Union troops were constantly attacking, and always in the open field, their heavier losses in killed and wounded are readily accounted for. The victory was one of the most important of the war. The country had become restive and impatient at the succession of costly and unremunerative battles which Grant had delivered in Virginia. The advance of Early to the walls of Washington and his unpunished retreat, his long visit to the lower valley, his incendiary raids in Maryland and Pennsylvania, had brought the public mind to a point of exasperation which had in it a serious danger to the Union cause. This brilliant victory of Sheridan, unpromised and unheralded, prepared with infinite prudence and pains, and then carried out with such dash and valor, was greeted with an outburst of patriotic joy. Sheridan's dispatch, with its trooper-like phrase, quote, We have just sent them whirling through Winchester, and we are after them tomorrow, end quote, became a household word in a few hours after it was written. Grant fired a hundred guns from each of his armies at Petersburg, and urged Sheridan to push his success. The president appointed the young hero a brigadier general in the regular army, and placed him in permanent command of the middle division, and sent him a telegram, the manuscript of which hangs framed in his house, a rich legacy to his children. Quote, Have just heard of your great victory. God bless you all, officers and men. Strongly inclined to come up and see you. A. Lincoln. End quote. 
It was, in fact, not easy to exaggerate the importance of Sheridan's achievement. By patiently biding his time, by restraining his own spirit, which was naturally ardent and enterprising, until he saw a prospect of almost certain success, and then by striking with all his might, he had rendered an inestimable service at a time when it was much needed. The lower valley was, by the Battle of the Opequon, permanently rescued from Confederate control. Its loyal inhabitants, saved from further spoliation, its rich harvests, garnered in peace, the railroads and canals restored to traffic. The national capital was never again subject to threat or insult from an enemy. The soil of Pennsylvania and Maryland was never again trodden by a hostile foot. Early established himself on the 20th, two miles south of Strasburg at Fisher's Hill, the strongest defensive position in the valley. His right, under Wharton, was protected by the hill and by the north fork of the Shenandoah. His left, the dismounted cavalry under Lomax, was posted at the base of Little North Mountain. The interval was filled by Gordon's, Ramseur's, and Pegram's divisions, in the order named, from right to left. Fitzhugh Lee's cavalry, now under W. C. Wickham, was posted at Milford in the Luray Valley to guard against a movement on the Confederate right and rear, a precaution, as it turned out, of the greatest value. Thus posted, General Early felt himself secure, hoping that Sheridan would arrive, look at his position, and retire, as had happened a month before. But a very different spirit now animated the two armies. The moment the national troops arrived on the afternoon of the 20th, they began to take up positions which could mean nothing but aggression. All that Early could see in the way of gradual approach and careful reconnaissance convinced him at last that he would have to endure an energetic attack. But what was going on out of his sight was more serious still. Sheridan was engaged during the 21st in posting Wright and Emery, the one on the right, the other on the left, as near as convenient to the enemy, and succeeded in occupying, after a sharp skirmish with the troops of the Sixth Corps, the high ground on the north of the Tumbling Run, a swift brook which ran directly in front of the Confederate position. When this point had been gained, it was quickly fortified, and there was a certain comfort to General Early in the sound of the pioneers' axes and in the work of the engineers under his very eyes. He began, he says, to think Sheridan, quote, was satisfied with the advantage he had gained, and would not probably press it further, end quote. But Sheridan, instantly arriving, had resolved to repeat his tactics of the 19th, and send Crook round the enemy's left flank. With admirable silence and secrecy, this was accomplished, without the knowledge of Early's vigilant lookout on Three Top Mountain. Crook, with the Eighth Corps, gained the flank of Little North Mountain, and then stole along its rugged side under cover of the woods until he came upon the Confederate left and rear. In the meanwhile, Ricketts's division of the Sixth Corps was thrown well forward and to the left of the Confederate center, producing the impression that the attack would be made from that direction. General Early, who in his ordinary frame of mind would have welcomed such an attack as he saw himself threatened with, now only wished for night to come, and gave orders for his troops to retire after dark. The sun had already set, and he did not dream that a battle and defeat could come to him in the short hour of twilight. But the time was ample. 
suddenly with no more warning than the lightning gives crook burst upon the division of lomax taking their works in reverse and putting them to disordered flight ricketts immediately joined hands with him and the rest of wright's and emory's men poured like a torrent into the ravine of tumbling run and swarmed up its further slope with an irresistible rush the whole confederate line yielded its formidable position almost without striking a blow Quote, after a very brief contest says early my whole force retired in considerable confusion the two defeats exerted their cumulative force upon them they were so amazed at crook's sudden apparition that they imagined he had come over the mountains and taken the pike in their rear and great numbers therefore broke in dismay and disorder to escape on the right by the north fork of the massanutton range the rout on the battlefield was complete sixty guns were abandoned in the flight of the confederates and a thousand prisoners were taken the rest escaped in the darkness and if the cavalry which had been sent under torbert down the luray valley could have executed their orders to cross by massanutton gap to newmarket early's whole army would have been captured or destroyed but they found wickham strongly posted at milford and Torbert, knowing nothing of the battle and victory at Fisher's Hill, did not feel justified in making the sacrifice which would have been required to carry the lines by assault. When the news came, it was too late to profit by it. Early was driven up the valley at headlong speed, but pursuing infantry never overtake infantry who are running for their lives, and even the cavalry engaged in this stern chase touched Early's rear guard only once or twice. He marched with the greatest expedition up the valley to Newmarket, but instead of going on to Harrisonburg, he turned to the east and took the Kieseltown Road to Port Republic and Brown's Gap, where he arrived on the 25th, and where shelter and succor awaited him. End of chapter 13. Recording by Owen Cook in Pottawatomie, Ceded Land.